This morning we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, starting with verse 10. And the last time we looked at the beginning, the first few verses of the chapter, it was all about love and really what the difference is between what you might see in Hollywood or TV or parodies or literature versus true biblical love. Uh, some of the love we see on TV and such is fleeting, it's exciting, it's a lot of things, but true love is something that lasts, it's consistent. It satisfies. Uh, It goes the distance. And today we're going to finish up the chapter. Still, there'll be an underpinning of love, but we're going to look at uh, famous or parting words. And I I, I almost said it, the Apostle Paul, I still believe that, and Pastor Eric here was last Sunday. I didn't coach him to say that. He said it too. So a lot of people do believe that the Apostle Paul authored it. However, it's an anonymous work. And he's going to continue with some themes. They may seem eclectic or choppy at times, but basically think about if you were writing a letter and what you would put at the very end, especially if it was a really lengthy letter. You would reiterate the really important points, uh, maybe a microcosm of the entire letter. Um, So it, it just kind of comes together in that understanding. So we're going to jump in, starting with verse 10. So Hebrews 13, verse 10. For we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The first four verses are a little tough if you're not familiar with the Old Covenant, if you don't have a great understanding of the Scripture. And basically, this is a transitional period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the priests were still ministering in the tabernacle, in the temple, offering up sacrifices when they didn't have to because Christ was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. So they were going to be held accountable for continuing this ritualistic uh, thing that was going on, this rite, when they should have been following Christ as the Messiah and putting all their implements down, so to speak. So he basically says if they're going to still be working over there on the temple, then they really don't have the right to come here and to, you know, worship and serve at this tabernacle. It says, For the bodies of those beasts, meaning the sin offerings, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned outside the camp. The sin offering was taken outside the camp and burned and fully consumed. Here's the parallel. Therefore, Jesus also, Jesus also was a sin offering. He died for our sins. That he might sanctify or set us apart or make us more like our spiritual nature, more follow what God would want, reflect his desires, than look like the world. That Jesus might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate, just like the sin offering, up the hill to Calvary, all right, out of Jerusalem, to be crucified. Therefore, let us go forth to him, not away, outside the camp bearing his reproach. Who wants to bear reproach this morning? Anybody? you want to be maligned? Do you want people to lie about you? Do you want to be talked bad about for just doing the right thing? Well, that's what happened to Jesus. The most righteous person, sinless person, was treated like a sinner and killed like a criminal. So the completely opposites, completely antithetical to his nature. 14, for we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. And in a sense, as if to say, remember, context, Hebrew Christians still kind of wavering between the two covenants. In addition, because of the persecution, still considering going back to the old system. So here's the context. And in essence, he's saying, do you want an altar? Do you want a sacrifice? Do you want a high priest? Do you want all these things? 
right, as we covered all 13 chapters, well, that's all been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Are you still looking for those uh, religious accoutrements, all the trappings of religion and the temporal? I want to read one scripture that I want to go back to in Galatians 3, 1 through 5. And the Apostle Paul authored Galatians. Galatians 3, 1 through 5. And it wasn't just the Jewish believers who were doing this. It was believers who came out of Gaul and came out of uh, different pagan backgrounds or just regular Romans and Greeks that became believers that weren't Jews. So here's a parallel to his non-Jewish audience. He says, foolish Galatians. I love that. You know, foolish. How are you so foolish? He says, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. In other words, tell me this, if I could paraphrase. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Of course, it's the, it's the latter. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect or complete in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And there, you can't have both, brothers and sisters. We can't have amulets. We can't have idols that we, that we worship, that we look at. We can't do physical things and think it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow us spiritually. God wants our hearts. He doesn't want that stuff. He wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want these trappings of, of the temporal and, and, and a lot of the religious stuff. And today people do the same thing. They could have a relationship with God, the creator of the universe. What an awesome thing. But instead they'd rather do stuff, say a prayer, light a candle, do this, do that, when God wants our hearts. We wouldn't give any less to those that we love on earth, would we? We would give them our hearts. And God wants the same thing. Now in verse 13, he says this. Remember, the, the Christians he's, he's writing to are going through great difficulties. And, and they, were, they were tempted to shy away from Christ because Christianity was becoming unpopular. Which I suspect is becoming unpopular in our country. Look at the news. Read the news. Look what's going on in our government. Look what's going on in the military. They're trying to... Any other belief system or religion is acceptable in the public schools, now in the military, in the government, but Christianity is taboo. So don't think that that's not going to get worse over time. Don't think that we're not going to be persecuted in this country for our belief system. Then it's really going to show what we're made of. Amen. Verse 13, he says, therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Where he goes, let us go. Not running away from him because we don't like the pain and the trials and the difficulties. So Jesus basically, when we live like him, when we speak like him, when we become more like him, we'll become persecuted. The Bible's clear about that. Even if it's just peer pressure or, or mere annoyances, it's going to be something. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Why? Because you're carrying his message. And the temporal, rebellious world against God doesn't like that message because it brings the world, it tries to save them, and pushes them towards a different world, towards his world. Alistair Begg said it best. He said, Christianity is not about escaping life's problems. It's about facing them. Now, I would add to that, it's about facing them well or better than we did when we weren't saved. I know for me that's true. Big time. I would never go back. 
verse 14. He says, for we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Now, this is an amazing prophecy about the city of Jerusalem. We know that a few years after this letter was written, Titus Vespasian, you know, the Roman-Jewish war, they surrounded, he came with four Roman legions, followed the entire city, surrounded, besieged the city of Jerusalem with legions spread out with about 60,000 Roman troops and they besieged the city. Then they breached one of the walls and the Roman soldiers came in and destroyed the place. They burnt the town. It was a horrible massacre. Uh, about a million people perished in this Roman-Jewish war. A horrible thing. So Jerusalem, for all intents and purposes, was destroyed, except for some of the things we see today, some of the artifacts. I, I recently read about a dig they did, and they found you know, incredible historical you know, of the homes back then and the things that pieces of furniture. Jerusalem is fascinating, but it, it wasn't a continuing city. It wasn't going to last. You tell that to any Jewish person in A.D. 75 or A.D. 80. So here's the thing. Unfortunately, some people made an idol out of the religious system. And today, people make idols out of religion. I know I did when I was growing up. I lived anything but a Christian. But I had this denomination that I was so loyal to. I don't even know what they taught. But I was this because I was brought up this way. And I had no relationship with God. So it's not just them. They made an idol out of the city and God allowed the city to be destroyed. And I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, when we have idols in our lives, and we covered the, the section about discipline as believers, how the Father loves us and he chastens us like his children. So idols in our lives that we amass will either destroy us or he will destroy them. They're never a good thing. Well, the good news is this, that in Revelation 21, when we covered Revelation, there will be a new city, a new Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, that the Lord makes, that it's, it's like from New York to Florida in width and uh, from the eastern seaboard just about to the western seaboard in, in length and width and the same distance high. It's like this huge cube that can fit really on top of the United States. And not only does it have two dimensions, it has three dimensions. And this, the Bible t teaches, talks about how we can go from one place to another in like an instant. I don't know if we'll just have these bodies that can just traverse space and time and we could be on earth we can the new heavens and the new earth we could be in, in in jerusalem we'll be with god personally this is the human mind can't comprehend this stuff that's been written we have no idea the amazing things that god has set up for us it's going to be to me i think about it as like a big playground for adults so we'll see what happens but that's what we got to put our hope and trust in not any city you know i live in new jersey and i'm not loyal to new jersey i'm loyal to his city and I don't even like New Jersey sometimes, but let's, that's another discussion for another time. Verse 15, it says, Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you, or who lead over you, and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. Sometimes I find some humor in the scripture when I read it. But in these passages, these verses, he uses the word therefore three times. Therefore means you got it, now do it. 
There's an action that needs to take place here. And we, we, are, we are to sit at the Lord's feet, and then we're also to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. So in light of what? What do we cover in chapter 13 between the last two sermons? Well, love in the social and spiritual realm, uh, the sacrifice that Christ offered. So here's the point. What should be our response? How do we please God? We please God by, and I'm going to go through some of these things, but, you know, again, I just use myself in as, exa- as an example. Growing up, as even a teen and a young adult, uh, I would go to church on Sunday, and I would do my best to be good at church, because it's church. And then I would do whatever I wanted from Monday through Saturday. And you know what? That's so much easier than having a relationship with the Lord, because you can be just fleshly as you want to be and then just try to be good on a Sunday. Everybody puts on their best clothes and their best smiles and, and then we do the thing, we do the do. But God wants more than that. He wants a relationship with us. And, you know, if I talk to the average person, they may say, gee, I have my spouse, my kids, my siblings, my parents. I don't, another relationship, it's work. Yes, relationship is work. If you have a good relationship, you work at that relationship, don't you? But remember, we're talking about God here. We're talking about a a rock, a a hiding place in times of difficulty. We're talking about when everyone else forsakes us, he's there for us. I mean, sometimes I feel like I've got to try to convince people to want to have a relationship with God. But the benefits are, are so much greater than anything we could ever experience on earth. So let's go through some of these. There's some things that we have, we're responsible to do, and God would prefer in, in terms of our sacrifice to him. Number one, he says, praise and thanksgiving. In biology, we would call this a symbiotic relationship. They feed off of each other. Think about it. When we're praising him and we're praising him and we're, we're meditating on the Psalms and we're, you know, we're just basking in his, his, his love, we naturally give thanks. And when we give thanks on the other extreme or the other side, when we give thanks and we start making a list of all the things that God has done for us or where we are in life or who's close to us or how he's protected us from certain things, then we want to praise him. Right? It, goes, it goes back and forth. So in a sense, this word sacrifice is also used two times. And it's almost a play on words. They did the sacrifices in the temple and the author is saying, do you really want to sacrifice well, start by praising him, uh, giving thanks. Let there be fruit that comes off of your lips in a, figure, in a figurative sense or a spiritual sense. And praise should be a part of our prayer life. Somebody taught me a long time ago uh, the acronym ACTS, uh, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. So we look at the, the A, Adoration. It's praise. Who are we, who are we addressing? When we address somebody important, do we not use their title because they're important? The honorable so-and-so, would you go into a courtroom and not give the judge the due for his, his position? You call him the honorable so-and-so. So A is, is adoration. We're going before the king of the universe. Praise him. And the T is for thanksgiving. Thank him. Listen, we're getting close to Christmas time. The attitude is not to look up and say, Hey, Celestial Santa, I got a long wish list here. Can you meet some of my demands? You know, we should be thanking him because he's done so much for us as it is. And he's given his son to die for our sins so we can have eternal life. So this is true worship that God accepts, praise and thanksgiving. And in the first portion with these two words, I would say this, that we have a direct responsibility to God. Now we're going to look at the second two. 
The second two, in verse 16, is to do good and share. Well, that's a good thing, to do good and share. And this really is our responsibility to others. And yes, we do have a responsibility to others because it pleases God. We just saw that scripture in in a video clip. For what you have done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done them to me. Well, I don't know them. They're strangers. But God says it's like you're doing it for me. So to do good and to share. Otherwise, it's incongruous with our faith. there's, There's a lack of harmony. There's a lack of reason. This doesn't save us, but it's a part of who we are as believers. I want to read to you James 1, 26 and 27. The book of James, two verses. He says, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, and this word actually is not used very often in the Bible, religious. Relationship is used a lot. Love, sharing, you know, uh, responsibility. But religious is used very, very briefly, but he's speaking to his hearers. If you want to be religious and you don't bridle your tongue, you're deceiving your own heart, and this one's religion is useless. He goes on. It's what I want to focus on this morning. He says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now we have to ask ourselves, is the holidays all about me? It's cold. People are hungry. Some of the food banks are low. Some people are lonely. Some people are depressed. Um, You know, some people don't have anywhere to go for the holidays. They have nobody to share it with. Maybe the holidays don't mean anything to them because they don't even know what the holidays are about. Thanksgiving, we just eat turkey and stuff ourselves and gorge ourselves. But what does Thanksgiving mean? We're giving thanks for what? Christmas. Oh, we decorate and put up wreaths and, you know, do the tree and, and go to different events. But what does Christmas mean? Maybe there's some people out there that need us to teach them that they can be saved, that there's a gift waiting for them, that Jesus is the gift in that manger, right? The gift to all of us. So the holidays, sometimes it brings out the worst. You ever see some of these videos about what happened on Black Friday recently? I, somebody told me that uh, people were tasing each other to get in, in front of the line, you know, and it's just crazy stuff out there. I mean, it's cool to go to, I guess, Black Friday. To me, I'd rather pay extra than stand outside in the cold. That's just me. I'll pay the 50 bucks extra, 75. I'm not standing out there for hours. And there's nothing sinful about that. But what about the attitude? What about the stealing of the parking spots? What about people almost running each other over? I don't want to go to the mall. God bless my wife's heart. I don't have to go to the mall. She'll do it for me. And then I make it up to her some way. <laughs> I don't want to go to the mall. It's, it's a scary place. But, <laughs> but the truth is that, that the holidays a lot of times brings out the worst in people. And let it not be said about God's people. Let it not be said about us being selfish and snarky and catty and, and, and just hair trigger and snapping at other people. There's different things that God has for us. You see, religion is useless unless there's action associated with it. And they're inextricably linked. They have to go together. It can't just be, well, we're being fed on a Sunday and we just forget about it and we don't apply God's word to our lives. So verse 17, I'll read this again. He says, Obey those who rule or lead over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, 
for that would be unprofitable to you. So in other words, this third category is to be obedient in spiritual things. Why? Well, for our own good and because God commands it. And it's also for the good of harmony in the church. Now, I want to read 7 because the last time I read 7, it said I'd group it with 17. So I want to read 7 and then I'll go back to this. He says, remember. One is obey and the, the former one is remember those who rule or lead over you, who have spoken the word of God to you whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, in seven, remember. So probably it means to keep in mind. You know, I have mentors that mentored me spiritually that have died, that have passed away, and I do remember them. And at times my wife and I reminisce about these people in our lives that were there for us. Listen, as time goes on in the aging process, people pass. So remember them, the ones that led you, the good ones, of course, the ones that have spoken or, t- or taught the word, not man's wisdom, but the word, right? Have lived out their faith and that we want to imitate their behavior. And again, person I know in particular that I remember passed away, it's 10, 15, 10 years ago. And uh, I still think that I'd like to be like him because he had such an impression on my life. Uh, even the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's so cool. He didn't say imitate me when I throw a tantrum. He didn't say imitate me when I, I'm in the flesh. He said imitate me as I imitate Christ, you know, because we're humans, right, in, in any type of leadership position or spiritual position. So um, take the good stuff and follow the good stuff. Don't take up the bad habits. And verse 17, he says, now those that are obviously actively ruling or leading over, and we can look at pastors and ministry leaders and things like that, and the word for rule or lead is actually in the Greek hegeomai, which is where we get the word hegemony from. I like playing with words. It's a lot of fun to me. You can see a lot of our words in the English come from the Greek and, and other uh, roots from other you know, languages. Here's the deal. Submission is not popular today, but it's necessary. And I'll give you another example. How many times have missionaries taken their sons and daughters out to the missions field? Right? How many have we read over uh, decades of you know, those that have passed a long time ago and their, their memoirs and their notes? And you know, when a missionary goes out into a hostile area to Christianity, they know that their life and the life of their families could be in jeopardy at any time. And this has happened more than a, a few times, many times, where uh, a missionary will have the keen sense of the Holy Spirit to see that the, in the village or the place they're ministering to, the militants are starting to come in and their faces look different. They're, they're angry, and they're holding firearms, or whatever the case may be, and the kids might be playing. And the, uh, the missionary would say to his son, get down, and they have to be obedient, because it's a matter of life and death. Well, what if that kid just says, what do you mean get down? Dad, I don't like the way you spoke to me. I'm gonna be 18 in a few months, and I wanna tell you something. <laughs> What's gonna happen? There is a time for submission. There's a time for obedience, especially in life or death situations. And I'll tell you this, that pastors and those who rule and lead over you, we see the bullets coming too, but they're not physical bullets. We see the darts of the evil one. We see things happening. And it's our job at times to warn you. And it's not popular. It's our job sometimes to be the pastor wet blanket. 
You know, I know that that book came out and that kind of spurious Christian author, but that's ministering to a lot of my friends. And I bet Pastor Joe has something to say about that Sunday. You're darn right. I'm going to say something about it on Sunday. Or that movie that I want to see that, you know, I know it's kind of fleshy, but I really want to see the sequel to it. I bet Pastor Vinny will say something about that on Wednesday. He probably will. You know, it isn't our job to be popular. It's our job to protect you. The Bible says that we have to answer for your souls and give an account for the spiritual health of individuals and of the church in general. Is that sobering or what? It's kind of scary if you think about it. We're not talking about real estate. Oh, I, I, you know, I traded some of your stocks, Russ, and I lost a few hundred bucks. Can you forgive me for that? It's okay. You know, I, I thought that I could sell your, your property for more than that, John, and sorry, it didn't work out that way. We're talking about something that's eternal. We're not talking about trading money and stuff that just comes and goes. We're talking about souls. And that should be something that really wakes us up. These are precious possessions. Verse 17b, and, and I kind of, again, I laugh at this one. He says, let them do it with joy and not with grief. I like that. <laughs> All I can say is amen. I mean, there are just some, and it's happened, and I've seen it, where uh, people are just rebellious. It's the culture that we live in. It's cool to be rebellious. And they have a hair-trigger temper, and they're constantly changing good churches, some even good calvaries because they can never stay in a church long because they don't want to submit to anybody because they're rebellious. They cannot take correction. And that's a sad thing. But it is what it is. When we deal with problems in the church or trouble people, it takes away from prayer time, being in the Word, and maybe making appointments with people who really need to see us. So it should be a joy and it shouldn't be done with grief. I'll tell you this, when I go to my secular job, I have men that hold rank over me that make no bones about it. They're not spiritual men, and they tell me what to do. Go get that. Go do this. Come back with that. I'm sending you on a detail, and, and I obey. And that's an awesome thing because I know what it means to submit, especially in a paramilitary organization. So how much more, if we would submit to unspiritual people to earn a paycheck, how much more should we submit to those spiritual leaders that we trust that care for our souls? something to think about. Verse 18. He says, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. So this is the conclusion of the letter. And it starts off with, Pray for us. Now remember who's writing this a pillar of the early church asking for prayer. Never underestimate the power of prayer. You ever hear somebody say, well, all we can do is pray at this point. That's probably what we should have been doing first. <laughs> and we can be exasperated about life, but if we're not praying, you know, what are we doing? God will honor a praying church. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary, who's gone to be with the Lord, he attributes a lot of the successes of Calvary Chapel when it started, not with technology, not with man's wisdom, not with satellite churches, not with fancy light shows. Chuck Smith attributed the success of the church and its ability to take off and grow and plant other churches, and I've heard him say this, to a group of elderly women who faithfully prayed continuously for that church and those pastors. Right? Something to think about. 
Think about your kids. You know, next to your salvation and your spouse, spouse, your kids are most precious to you. Well, right now, downstairs, there are people teaching and watching your precious possessions. Pray for them. Because they may be able to reach your children where maybe you can't reach them because of the whole parent-child thing. Pray for your teens and your young adults who's teaching them. And we've got awesome people here. And they're, they're just great. You know, they just agonize over the, the scripture. They, they, they rehearse at home. They put stuff to, And they're volunteers because they care about what they're doing with your children. So pray for them and pray for us. And I would say this, that when I ask you, when I stand before you and say, will you please pray for me? What am I doing? I'm making myself vulnerable. Think about that. I'm telling you that I'm not perfect. I'm telling you that I don't have it all together. I'm telling you that the men and women who are leading this church are just people. We bleed like you do. We make mistakes like you do. We have to repent like you do. So when I say, and the author of Hebrews says, pray for me, we are making ourselves completely vulnerable to you. And that's a place that really nobody wants to be in society. But I'm going to tell you this, pray for me. Pray for the leaders here, please. Don't forget to do that. And I'm blessed that our church has plenty of venues for prayer. Different times of the week, mornings, evenings, uh, attached to certain events because that's how important we see it as. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what we could call a benediction part of the letter. Let's look at three portions of this. Number one, we're reminded how great our God is. How great is our God? Number one, he says he has the power to resurrect and the fact that he's always acting on behalf of us as our great shepherd. So number one, how great is our God? It's spelled out here. Number two, in verse 21, how able our God is. He's great, and two, he's able. He makes us complete in every good work to do his will, if we allow him. If we give ourselves over to him as believers and trust him with the direction of our life, let him be our moral compass, he can do amazing things through it. I've seen it time and time again. A goal in life, once we're believers, is to glorify God. Not live in the flesh. Not live however we want. That's a BC attitude. And our prayer life should be, what is God your will in my life? There's, there's less, less friction between us when we're really asking him and we're opening ourselves up for him to do the work in our lives. It says to make you complete. That Greek word was to mean back then to set a broken bone or to mend a torn fishing net. That was a repair job. It was a fixed job. We are never as mature, complete, or perfected as when we're doing what the Lord has called us to do. And I have to say this to you. Every single person in this room has a hidden treasure in them. Some of you have realized, and it's, you know what's amazing? When God does so many things for us when he saves us, he gives us eternal life. He gives us abundant life. He gives us a good life now. We get to walk with him on this, you know, in this dispensation. He seals us with his Holy Spirit. He's with us when everyone forsakes us. I can go on all day with this stuff. He also takes treasure 
and he hides it inside of us. It's that hidden treasure. What is your spiritual gift? You might be an encourager, administrator. You might be a future evangelist, preacher, preacher's wife, teacher of women. You could be a lot of different things. And, you know, it's really neat. It's you get to have fun, you and God, opening up that, that lid and seeing what your hidden treasure is. And the beautiful thing is that, yes, I'm up here doing this, and right now you're all focused on me. But there are gifts that a lot of you have that I don't have and I will never have. And when I see that and I get to sit back and shut up after I'm done preaching, which is hard for me to do, I get to watch you in action. And that's exciting to me. I'm like, I don't have that gift. Oh, bring bring out the popcorn. This is really fun to watch. So I would just encourage you that if you don't know what that hidden treasure is in you, would you please stay after service and pray with one of us? And let's ask the Lord to reveal it to you because you all have it. You all have it. The third thing is how concerned for us God is, right? How concerned for us God is. He says, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. I don't know about you, but I want to please my Father in heaven. And I'm sure you all feel like that as well. And I have to tell you that when my son does a good job in something, I'm, I go out of my way to make sure he understands how happy I am with him. I pat him on the back. I tell him I'm proud of him. We just have this discussion. It's a really neat thing because I want him to know that I'm pleased with him. And I want my father to be pleased with me. I want to be equally yoked with him in ministry. Verse 22, last few verses. He says, And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free, with whom I shall see you, with whom I shall see you, if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. So this is, I would categorize this as some administrative or housekeeping notes to the people that he's writing to. And even though it was an anonymous letter, obviously they knew who he was. They didn't say, well, who is this guy? He's given them specific directions. He's encouraging them. He's naming names. So they understood who the writer was, even though to us it's anonymous. So verse 22, take this letter to heart. Some would and some wouldn't, just like anything else. You know, when we read the word, all right, I read something, and I may read something in the prophetic books that I, for me personally, realize, whoa, that's really convicting. I don't know if I could do that yet, you know, but I really want to, but I don't know if I'm there yet. So some would accept what he had to say, and some wouldn't. It's also another proof text, possibly, that the writer was the Apostle Paul. He's speaking about Timothy, and Timothy was a young protege to the Apostle Paul. Right? Possible that uh, they were already spending time at some of his protégés in prison because of their faith. And at this time, he was out, and, and the plan was to, to greet them or to see them at some point. And we make our plans, but God really determines if they follow through or not. And he says, greet the brothers and sisters and greet the leaders for me um, from Italy. little shout-out to Italy. Pretty good there. Uh, <laughs> most likely, this was written from Rome, or he's speaking on behalf of the Italian Christians. So here's my question. What did this letter mean to you? And if you didn't get all of it, you can get it for free on the website. What did we learn from this letter? What did we get out of this letter? Because even though the writer of Hebrews couldn't comprehend that 2,000 years later, Christians in New Jersey would read it and it would be applicable to our lives. And if God revealed it to him, it probably blew him away. He thought he was writing to a select group under the whole, you know, inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
If nothing else, I would say that our, our faith should be strengthened by this. Because this letter, faith was established, faith was proven. And if you've been with us for all 13 chapters, you know what I mean. I mean, he goes into the intricacies of the law, he takes the New Testament, and he puts it up with the New Covenant, and he shows the fulfillment. He also establishes that there were going to be storms in their lives. And they were going to have to react accordingly to those storms. Now, I just want to say this, because I know we have the teens in service today. I want to throw, I know people think that uh, you don't want to like do your biology and your chemistry and stuff, but I want to throw a little science in here. And I'm going to really expand this. We do have a little bit of time, um, not a lot, but in, in another message, I'm going to go really more into apologetics. But the faith is proven. You see, you can prove the existence of God to somebody. You realize you can do that? You can prove it. But it doesn't mean that you can win them over to belief. So there's a, a mental exercise that gets done, but then there's also a spiritual regeneration that has to take place as well. I've had discussions with people where we've argued, you know, debated, better word, science back and forth, and they're like, you know, I can't argue with you, but I'm just not ready. And what do you do? You don't force it on them. You pray for them. Let's talk about maybe some things um, when we talk about evolution. We talk about some of the uh, conundrums or the paradoxes. So here's one of them. It's called the uh, tar or carboxylic acid paradox. Now this means that in the 1950s, uh, Miller and Urey did some experiments and they took some uh, you know, basic molecules and they would, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, instead of going into all the detail, they would explode them. And they would try to show how they were, you know, ammonia and methane and, you know, oxygen and these different building blocks on life on the earth. And they, the Big Bang, Big Spark, and all of a sudden there's life. Unfortunately for them, 98% of the experiments yielded tar or carboxylic acid, which is detrimental to life. Nothing can live in those conditions. 2% got them a few of the... Um, molecules to change and, and maybe what they thought might have turned into amino acids, arginine and such. But here's the problem with that. Number one, all the explosions they did, they just got this, this organic goo, this black organic goo that nothing could live in. So it didn't prove anything. The other issue is that I call it the Frankenstein conundrum. You can take uh, cells of a person, you can take uh, even a person who's just passed away, and you give it enough time for the body to start decomposing, and you cannot bring that person back to life. People have been trying to do that for years. Now we have this thing with human cloning, and, and men are trying so hard to play God. And, but what men want to do is they want to take the building blocks of life and make life out of it, leaving God out of it. So again, Dr. Frankenstein did it, remember, you know, and somebody might have done it, and you know, dig, dig a person up and, and zap him with electricity and do all these things, and yeah, it's, it's good for movies, but it's not reality. So you can have all the building blocks of life you want and never create life. Do we understand that? The other issue is the water paradox or the law of mass action. And that basically says that if you have a so-called primordial soup, the oceans, you know, whether it's water, H2O, or saline, you know, salt water, which is even worse, and you try to build uh, basic proteins, you know, again, the Big Bang, evolution, started from this, becomes this. That's a problem, too, because the law of mass action tells us that when you have peptides, uh, that, that you want to make polypeptides and turn them into functional proteins, as readily as peptides may bond in the primordial soup, they also unbond. And that was the issue with the um, 
uh, the big thing, what was the chord, uh, Huxtable or Huxley, come on, yeah, shout out to me here. That's it, where they took Wilberforce, Hux, Hux, I can't say, the Huxley debate, which I think it took prayer out of schools. The, the Christian allowed a premise with the monkeys on the typewriters that you could, you know, make the works of Shakespeare or something. The problem is, in a primordial situation, as, as well as those monkeys can randomly type on the typewriter, they're also untyping the words at the same time. You will never build anything substantial. So the laws of ma- ma- mass action says, I get excited when I talk about this stuff. Can you tell? It basically says that you'll never get peptides that grow into chains that become polypeptides because there's an equilibrium equation, which means the arrow, if you look at chemistry, the arrow is going in both directions. So you get some dipeptides and tripeptides, then they break down into single peptides, etc. So you never get those proteins that you're looking for. And that's only two of them. And I only did that because we had some time. <laughs> but this stuff is fun. And I got to tell you, parents, you need to be learning this stuff. I know you got plenty of other things to do. But, you know, teens and young adults, they want to know. They have questions. And this is very simple, um, you know, chemistry and biology to, to, to understand. So we can prove our faith. We can prove that God exists, but not everybody's going to be one to the faith because their spirit has to be regenerated. So anyway, the bottom line to that is that we know what we believe. The author of Hebrews knew what he believed. He was telling the Hebrew Christians things that they already knew. In times of difficulty and fear and trial, what he was trying to do is ground them back in the word and say, yes, you're going to go through the storm, but God is with you. Go through the storm with him. And brothers and sisters, in 2013 in New Jersey, we know what we believe. But when something tragic happens in our life, we can panic sometimes, don't we? We start to lose it a little bit. And sometimes either it's a word from the Holy Spirit or other believers that to help us to come down and realize who we are and who we need to be. And we also need to understand that God is with us. He wants to go through that storm with us. So I just want to encourage you this morning, number one, that, that you, your, faith, your faith is bolstered. Remember, in chapter 11, it's the chapter of faith. It bolsters our faith, and it gives us a long litany, I love it, divided up into four sermons of all these people that the world would look at as failures, and God used them, and they still failed, but he still used them. And then he puts them in the book of Heroes of Faith, that's my boy, that's my girl. Yeah, but I don't understand. You wouldn't understand, it's a God thing. So I just want to leave you with this this morning. Just pray about your life, your faith, what you're going through. Let God take you through those storms. Don't let this letter fall on deaf ears. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you as always for your word. And uh, what a blessing it is.